One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to How to Eat to Save the Planet, the podcast that takes a comprehensive look at sustainable food production from field to fork. I'll be looking at how we can learn from the past to net zero the way we eat by learning some of the granny skills that have got lost in our shrink-wrapped, consumption-heavy, busy-brained lives. I'm Julie Smith and I'm on a quest to roll back the years to a time when food came from round the corner, when living off the land meant living lightly on the planet and to find out how to do it now. We start off by looking at the dairy industry with ethical farmers Becky and Patrick Holden at the UK's longest certified organic dairy farm, Bulchwen Nonvaur, in West Wales, where they make Havod cheese from their 75 Ayrshire cows. Becky and Patrick's calves will be breastfed for three months, but not necessarily by their own mother. So this is her calf. It was born on, on Friday. Uh, the two, this one was born two weeks ago. And this one was born last week. Right, so she's only got one calf of her own, yet yeah. she's suckling three. She's suckling three, and she could potentially take four. She's got four quarters. Soil-associated certified organic farms must feed the calves their mother's milk or another mother's milk for up to three months. Calves in larger industrial dairy farms will be taken from their mothers at birth after just 24 hours of colostrum, the creamier postnatal milk that all babies need to kick-start their immune system. For cows to produce milk, they have to give birth to a calf. Like humans, the gestation period for a cow is nine months. Standard dairy industry practice is to separate calves within 24 hours of birth, which limits the cow-calf bonding process and reduces the pain of separation, according to the RSPCA. I know you're going to say I'm sentimentalising, but does she mind looking after other people's, after other cows' children? No. <laughs> I think she's, very, she's, she's taken to them happily. Once she can smell her own milk going through them, so after a day or so... She thinks of them as her own. Yeah. And where's the real mother? Uh, Their mothers are both in the herd, so they're just over there behind us. We'll talk about the sentimentalisation of normal people like me uh, over dairy farming, but actually the cow's real mothers are over there and they can see another cow nursing her babies, their babies. Would they mind? Can you tell if they mind? I think think some of them do mind. And... Uh, for two or three days, I would say, after the calf is taken away from its mum and put on a foster mum, say if that happens, um, some of the cows are quite distressed. Some don't mind at all. You know, it's, it varies a lot. But I, I think it's an inescapable truth about dairy farming that we are taking more of the milk than would be the case if the calf had it all. And unless you do calf at foot and things like that, which a very few dairy farmers are now doing, and maybe more will, um, 
there will be some distress with some of the cows. In the very few and very small-scale calf-at-foot dairies, both female and male calves stay with their mothers until they naturally wean themselves at around nine months old. We live with that every day, and the question is, how do we feel in front of that? But, call me sentimental, but I feel that our system here is small enough for those cows to know exactly where those calves are, to to see that those calves aren't in distress, to not hear them crying or mooing and to know that this is a safe space and they can see each other so there is still that interconnectedness yeah so patrick just said you know she's how we feel can we be on the right side of history here do you becky feel that this is the best way that you can do this job as a dairy farmer yes and as a mother so there is that dilemma that this is you know uh, this is an artificial situation that we're putting animals in but we have to do it to its yeah. most compassionate potential yeah. which is what we're doing now the reason that you keep the calf on a cow is because you believe that breast is best and and that interaction between the two so now this cow will stay with them for a, an hour and two hours and it's the licking it's the warmth it's the interaction between all four and those and and it's at a microbiological level there are microbes being passed from her teat to their mouth and back again and so it's all those things that we understand about the human biome uh, 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 manifest here and it's so easy to do that very simple I mean, it's almost easier for us to put a cow in and rather than, you know, mixing up milk replacer powder and adding water and then putting it into a bucket. And then you've got downstream, if you're not making the most of this instinctive, natural process, you'll have health consequences downstream if the like calves what? haven't got well if the calves haven't got a strong enough biome or microbiological or immune, immune system, response, yes. immune system, then they will struggle with infections and and, um, so it's not actually worth it for the farmer not to do the breast is best. Well, we, we, this works for us and maybe this works because of our scale, because we are smaller and because, because we can make sure that, it, that, that every calf is getting what it needs. But I have had visits from uh, bigger dairy farmers um, through the Agriculture and Horticulture Development Board who are interested in this and who are seeing that there are health benefits, there are management benefits and that it's something to start considering. Yeah, that cow that's calling there, what's it saying? And that cow is this one's this one's mum. Right, so she's actually saying, where's my baby? She's calling the calf, but she's also hearing that the calf is fine and not calling back, so she knows that the calf is is well. Yeah, I have to say, that calf is not interested at all in its own And she will call for how long? A couple of days. I do think it's significant that Becky is doing this. Uh, we've had four children, so... I think it's women that feel this, particularly this this link with their own babies. And you know, you're in front of this every day with our calves, and she's 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 okay about it. The other thing I'd say is that these calves. So you've got a batch of three, and then a batch of four, and then a batch of four. Well, they will grow up together. So there is already this bonding between the calves uh, that you see once they become teenagers and once they move up through the herd. So there's another bonding going on there by keeping these batches of calves together. And again, in the sterile, uh, bigger scale industrial setups, they tend to separate the calves, keep them on their own yeah. for, for cleanliness. Move away to a different building and everything. Yeah. Look, there's there's her own calf and the fostered calf suckling right on adjacent teats. Um, this is the first day that we've got this all going. 
Germs are good for the gut in measure, but sterility in farming is an industrial mindset that's brainwashed generations to forget what great food is all about. Patrick and Becky believe that the standard dairy practice of feeding calves powdered milk instead of mother's milk is part of that disconnect. Yes, and it's just sad that that's happening. It's become institutionalised, and you can't even really blame the dairy farmers. It's just what everyone does. If you, if you described it to somebody who knew nothing about farming, that you'd milk the cows, turn the milk into milk powder in a factory, sell the milk powder back to the farmers and get them to feed it to their own calves when they could do this, you'd think that was institutionalised madness. And it is. But, but institutionalised madness has gone right through the dairy farming community of this country and we need to tell the dairy farmers that there is another way to do it and it's OK, it's compassionate and it could be done at scale because that is the kind of dairy farming we need for the future. And it's also that a lot of it is being done out of fear of germs and again it's re-understanding that balance between good bugs and bad bugs and we need those good bugs to be working to help us and then we don't need to extinguish all bugs. So it's all about understanding balance. Yeah. So these, these, these calves are on deep litter, but as long as they're getting clean bedding every day, they can cope, their immune systems are strong enough to cope with any bugs that may try and um, multiply in this environment. But because there are enough good bugs, the balance is there. And germs are key to making their excellent Havvod cheese. As they showed me the mould that naturally occurs in the process of maturation, Becky says it's a perfect example of what field to fork really means. I mean, if you're starting from the farming, therefore healthy soil, healthy plant, healthy animal, you, the, the positive out, one of those positive outcomes will be healthy milk and therefore healthy cheese. So we're starting from our our hill and the soil and the, and the health of that soil and we're working forward through our farming and with the skill of a good cheesemaker you can transform that fantastic milk into very good cheese um, with our recipe we've gone back to the beginning of the 1900s when they were just starting to commercialise cheese production from farmhouse production and so our recipe compared to most cheddar recipes is a, a longer, slower make lower temperatures um, less starter culture, a different starter culture, just trying to find the most gentle way to express all those positives that are in the milk. And that includes flavour. But when you say gentle, so I'm thinking about, you know, when people are thinking, should I be eating dairy at all? This cheese comes from a good place. You know, it's good. It's good to eat, it's good for the calf, it's good for the cows, it's good for the land. And even, I mean, we're talking a lot about the microbiome at the moment. Uh, this is a live food. This is like the kefirs, the kombuchas. The moulds that you can see growing on the outside of this cheese are, are unique to this hill. You know, if you took this cheese somewhere else and matured it somewhere else, you'd have very different moulds and very different flavours and very different rind. Um, so this is a cheese, and we can, we can talk about terroir. Yeah. That's exactly what's happening in this store. So the flavours that come through from our cheese and the benefits from those cheese are the same as that come from our soil. And, the, and it's a positive outcome of the farming. Uh, and, and, you know, that's why we need to be thinking about where about the provenance of our, all our foods compared to something like a factory farm cheese. That, I mean, there's no terroir in a factory farm cheese. It has such a, a pollutant or such a huge impact on, on the climate. And yet something like this has such a positive impact on the soil. 
And it is about scale. You know, if we wanted to increase production, we could buy in milk, but that wouldn't be what we're about. It's all about starting with the footprint of our hill. What can we, how best can we look after that hill? What is the right number of cows for that hill? What's the right crops to grow for those cows? And therefore, what is the right scale of cheese making to reflect that management on the farm? Yeah. So if people want to have that experience, what should they be looking at? They're not all going to eat Havard cheese. Because <laughs> actually, because you wouldn't want them to, because no, you don't want to up to your around. scale. <laughs> exactly. So what should people be looking for? I think it's about what staples can pr- be produced sustainably in your locality. And that might be your locality as big as your country, but it's what can be grown and farmed sustainably. And that should be the majority of our diet. Yeah. And in terms of cheese, if people are literally saying, OK, I've suddenly changed my mind about dairy. I, I realise that it's actually positively good for the soil and for the environment, therefore. What should they be looking for? Is it only f- special farm cheese? Is it only organic cheese? Can they buy it in supermarkets? Well, there is, there's been an amazing renaissance in farmhouse cheese production in, in the UK in the last 20, 30 years. I mean, we almost lost those skills. There were a handful of um, territorial cheesemakers left, the Lancashires, the Cheddars, the the Wensleydales and there is a burgeoning growth in that and it's the small family farms who are looking to add value to their milk by going into cheese making so chances are if you can start to explore the British farmhouse cheese renaissance you'll be able to find something the food standard agency warns against raw milk because it may contain bacteria that causes stomach upsets or worse proponents of raw milk believe that it benefits the gut tastes better and builds a healthy immune system milk pasteurization destroys enzymes and vitamins which actually help us digest milk so raw milk is intrinsically healthier and more nutritious for us than pasteurized milk the reason why it's very difficult to get raw milk unless you buy directly from the farmer in fact it's illegal uh, is because of a concern about bacterial contamination and disease transmission both of which can happen but actually if the farm is carefully monitored and the milk production system is clean, there's very little risk. And there's probably a much greater risk of a whole nation of diminished physical health by eating highly processed food for a lifetime. But, of course, we don't think like that. Yeah. So, actually, the answer to that is more farms like this. Yes. I would say... The basic principles that we're using here should be adopted by all farms throughout the world. This is not a strange, you know, unusual farming system which only a few people could practice and only a few citizens could afford to eat the products from. This system needs to be applied and adopted right throughout the planet because we are farming in harmony with nature we're farming according to the principles of the circular economy and we're producing as much food as we can as is consistent with maintaining our capital our soil our biodiversity and our human capital and that's what has to happen all over the planet Patrick, who was director of the Soil Association, where he met Becky over 20 years ago and is now CEO of the Sustainable Food Trust, believes that ethical farming and sentimentality towards animals has become confused as we're more and more distanced from the source of our food. Well, our oldest cow actually was 18 years old um, when she left us 
Um, we actually ate her, and she was delicious. Um, we uh, had her killed, actually, on the farm, which meant that, of course, we couldn't um, sell the meat because yeah. uh, you're not allowed to, but you can do a home kill on the farm. And we hung the meat for four weeks, and it was some of the most delicious beef I've ever tasted. And uh, subsequently, we have had our uh, retirement cows uh, killed at the local abattoir, and then they've gone to London and have been eaten as a delicacy in high-end London restaurants. And I think that's rather appropriate, because if you think about um, the future of food being making use of everything, nothing wasted, then it's uh, appropriate that uh, a dairy cow, which is such an amazing um, producer of food, milk, food, cheese, everything during her life, um, can be eaten and valued at the end of her life. Yeah, but let me ask you, when you ate that cow, how did it feel? Well, it's interesting uh, that we live in a society which uh, has been completely distanced from the story behind its food. And the assumption, I think... Uh, of urban-dwelling people who never make contact with farm animals would be that if they knew the animal personally, they'd find it very difficult to have anything to do with its death or let alone eating it. But I find the reverse, and we find the reverse. My boys find the reverse. They see our pigs, which we rear on whey uh, from the cheese-making process and are literally reared from food we produce entirely on the farm. They make friends with them and they look forward to eating them because they know that they were happy pigs during their lifetime. And if you think about it, if you were asked the question, would you rather eat meat, if you do eat meat, from an animal that had lived a happy life and had been killed in a compassionate way or an animal which had been confined and reared intensively and then killed in a state of stress, I think most people would answer the former. One of the lesser-known ethical issues around dairy farms is the culling of bull calves at birth. Right now there's a huge issue about what happens to male uh, dairy calves because they don't fit with the traditional requirement for beef animals. According to a recent Guardian report, 95,000 bull calves were put down at birth in the UK in just one year. It can cost a farmer £2 a day to rear a calf, with selling prices as low as £25 to £40. In contrast, shooting the calf costs as little as £9, including the bill for disposing of the animal. We, as a society, have come to believe that eating veal is somehow part of the problem. But there is an alternative way to produce veal, rose veal it's sometimes called, uh, looking after the calf, suckling it on its mum or a foster mum, and in our case, rearing the calves till maybe nine or ten months old, and then uh, killing them for veal, which is actually delicious. It's a little bit like pork. It's a uh, it's a quite a tender meat, and it's an absolute intrinsic part of this efficient dairy farming sustainable food system. And if we can't persuade people to buy our veal, that's very difficult for us because we don't want to kill them at birth, of course. And we also want to uh, the circular economy of this farming system to work at all levels. So one of the things we need to do is to persuade people that if they want to align their diets with the productivity of future sustainable farming systems, they need to think what those sustainable farming systems produce and eat accordingly. Part of that story is definitely the male dairy cow. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Historically, the veal calf was taken from the mother at birth, kept in a crate, away from light, and fed milk powder. The process has now been banned by the EU, but Compassion and World Farming, which has successfully encouraged farmers to raise veal calves in an ethical way with plenty of light and space to exhibit natural characteristics, is concerned that many veal calves are still being exported live to the continent, where there is a much bigger market for the meat. That distance, that seems to be the biggest problem that has affected farming, both from the farmers who are going to agricultural college these days and learning how to factory farm, uh, as well as the people who are becoming vegans, and I know that's a big issue for you how did we lose that connection with the animals that are so essential to the health of the planet well it's been a gradual process it's um, taken place really throughout the last century but it's speeded up during the last 50 or so years which is the span of my farming lifetime and now we live in a society where the story behind our food is largely hidden from us. If we go into a supermarket and we set out with a mission of only buying food whose story we know, maybe how it was produced, whether it was sustainable, where the farm was, who the farmer was uh, who produced it, um, and whether it was um, produced in a place near where we live and perhaps it was seasonal, we'd end up buying nothing because... All those issues are now hidden from us. The food industry has done a brilliant job of sheltering us from the true story, the hidden story behind our food. And the irony is that if we knew that story these days, we probably wouldn't like to buy it. So what we now need to do is to make our future food and farming systems completely transparent. And we need to empower ourselves with the knowledge to differentiate between the farming and food systems which are part of the problem and which are leading to climate change and biodiversity loss and maybe even an unlivable planet if we carry on as we uh, are going at the moment. And the farming systems, including the livestock, which are absolutely part of the solution. And what we've been trying to put into practice here over the last 46 years is a farming system based on those principles. 
As CEO of the Sustainable Food Trust, Patrick campaigns for a better food system for farmers, for consumers, for animals and for the land. If anyone has the answer to what we should eat to save the planet, he does. Well, I think it's very important to start by saying it's a very understandable reaction to industrial food production, particularly in the livestock sector, to think, I really don't want anything to do with that. And perhaps the simplest way forward is to turn my back on all livestock products and become a vegan. But I have to say that in most areas of the world, and certainly in the United Kingdom and in Wales, where we are speaking now, the most sustainable farming systems of the future will combine plant production with the right kind of livestock systems, compassionately looked after, of course, but without livestock, it would be very difficult to produce the amount of food we will need to feed 67 million or whatever we are in this country at the moment in a sustainable way. Why? Can you break that down? Because a lot of people would say, just give up meat, let Britain and the rest of the world just return to forest land and eat plants. That's right. And that's what uh, effectively George Monbiot is saying. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know George Monbiot and uh, he's a a brilliant campaigner and a, a respected environmentalist. But I have to say, I think in relation to the dietary Uh, solutions that he's advocating he hasn't got it entirely right and I'll try to explain why we now know that agriculture and our industrialized food systems are major contributors towards climate change and one of the principal ways in which we've been um, causing runaway greenhouse gas emissions is through the destruction of our soil carbon and really during the um, post-war period Farmers have turned to intensive chemical monocultures producing grain or even vegetables year after year after year. Monoculture is the agricultural practice of growing a single crop, plant or livestock species, often to feed factory farmed animals. And over the last 100 years has replaced the traditional form of mixed farming that has been part of British life for centuries. They are heavily dependent on synthetic fertilisers, pesticides and antibiotics, as there are no other natural fertilisers part of the farming systems. This has had a devastating impact on biodiversity. They've degraded the soil fertility, and the way they've been able to do that is because of nitrogen fertiliser and chemical pesticides. But before those chemical products became available, nearly all the farming in the United Kingdom was based on a crop rotation which was about 50% grass and clover to build the soil carbon, and then the other 50% a succession of crops. It would have been wheat and potatoes and barley and oats and other vegetables, Mm -hmm. which were the feeding bit of the depleting bit of the fertility cycle. In other words... Of the soil. Of the soil, yes. And that cycle was an absolutely essential component of maintaining soil fertility, but also the biodiversity. Now, since then, in the industrial period... We've degraded the soil so seriously that we've down to maybe 1% uh, organic matter, and it used to be 5 or 6%. To get that organic matter back, we have to sow grass and clover. But during that fertility-building phase of the rotation, the only way we can turn that into food is to graze it with ruminant animals, that's beef and sheep and dairy cows, because they alone can digest the cellulose material in grass and clover. George Monbiot would immediately say, if I said that to him, or even David Attenborough, they say, yes, but what about the methane emissions from those mm-hmm. animals? They're causing uh, climate change. Yep. And my response would be this, that yes, uh, ruminants 
cattle and sheep do emit methane, but that is part of an ancient carbon cycle, which is as old as the herbivores are on the planet, and they've always been around. Mm. Not only that, but the the cattle and the sheep and the wild herbivores which preceded them were responsible for building most of the most fertile soils on the planet. Mm. Without them, we wouldn't have the rich soils that we've inherited. Plus, recent scientific discoveries have shown that the contribution that methane makes to climate change has been exaggerated so as long as the ruminants that we eat the the sheep or the cattle or in our case the dairy products that we eat are from grass-fed or mainly grass-fed animals we can honestly say that by eating them we are contributing towards the solution not the problem are the methane emissions that are the problem coming from the factory farms where all the animals are kept intensively so you get mass mega farms mass methane emissions it's not so much the methane emissions it's the carbon footprint so the energy and carbon footprint of the industrial livestock systems uh, include the destruction of rainforest and the degradation of the soils in south and north america and emissions from all the fossil fuels which are used in their production. So the new methane and the new greenhouse gases that are threatening the future of life on this planet mainly come from the fossil fuels. And the poor old ruminant animal has been a scapegoat, I think, and and unfairly blamed for a problem that we've created through our addiction to fossil fuels, to travel, to flying, and all the things that I'm doing less of. But I think really... There are important things we can do with our diets to be part of the solution, but just giving up meat altogether, unless you have ethical objections, is not necessarily part of the solution. And then there's the B12 time bomb associated with the rise of veganism. Whatever diet we are adopting is micronutrients, because it turns out that even though uh, you can get proteins... Um, from plant-based sources very often those proteins aren't as digestible and therefore bioavailable to our bodies as the livestock alternative so if you are a vegan or a vegetarian you're going to have a great deal more difficulty in providing adequate nutrition in certain vitally important uh, micronutrient areas um, some vitamins and other forms of proteins. Micronutrients are one of the major groups of nutrients our body needs and includes vitamins and minerals. B12 is necessary for red blood cell formation and proper nervous system and brain function, but can only be found naturally in animal products. Fortified foods and supplements are the only proven reliable sources for vegans. I would say that when we think about how much food an acre of land can produce, we should think about nutrition per acre, not simply yield per acre. And if you um, do the analysis that way, livestock come out rather well, because in a kilogram of grass-fed lamb or um, a kilogram of grass-fed dairy products, there's a lot of good nutrition there in a very dense and concentrated form in this case coming mainly from grass which we can't eat yeah. and that can be part of the solution yeah one of my heroes is a man called simon fairley uh, who's a smallholder from dorset he has 10 acres and uh, he gave a talk that i heard which inspired me last year and he said basically 
uh, a lot of the United Kingdom is covered with hilly grassland, which can produce the occasional crop but can't be cropped every year. So he asked himself the question and then put it into practice. Well, what can this 10 acres of land produce in a sustainable way, which can produce the most possible nutrition from that area of land? And he has concluded that an acre of vegetables, an acre of wheat, which he mills for flour, and the rest in grassland grazed by a dairy cow and her one. beef calf, maybe maybe one or two, depending on how much land mm-hmm. you've got. But the, the good old dairy cow not only is a very efficient land user because she can turn the grass into food, which we can't do, but she also produces a calf so she can produce milk or cheese or yogurt or butter or whey, which can also, also feed animals. Um, and in addition, at the end of her life, she, she too can be eaten. And he's concluded that this system of vegetables, wheat, and the dairy cow plus her offspring, in combination, are the key ingredients of a truly sustainable food system. And I believe that that system in microcosm should form the basis um, on a scaled-up version of all the food systems that the future of this country needs. And that is an important message for young people who want to do the right thing, who want to protest against industrial agriculture, rightly so. But they need to think about aligning their future diets to support farmers and smallholders like Simon Fairley or what we're doing on a slightly bigger scale here. Because unless those people eat our food, we can't survive. So eating meat and dairy less often, but only from high-welfare farms, is one of the answers to climate change. The hashtag less but better has over 20,000 posts on Instagram. But isn't it just for those who can afford it? My answer to that would be uh, some research the Sustainable Food Trust did a, a couple of years ago, uh, which resulted in a report which we called The Hidden Costs of UK Food. The headline from which is that for every pound of apparently cheap food that we pay in the shops there's another pound uh split about 50 50 between damage to human health and damage to the environment which isn't on the price of the food at all in other words the food pricing is actually dishonest and we are already paying for those hidden costs in the form of higher nhs treatment costs which comes through our taxes or our water bills where we have to clean up the nitrates or the pesticides that are getting into our nitrate our water Mm. or we're deferring the cost, the hidden cost of our food, to our children because they're, hang- they're going to have to deal with the climate change consequences of industrial farming systems. So what we believe is that to correct that dishonesty, we need to apply the polluter-pays principle and make sure that those farmers and food producers whose methods are causing damage to public health and the environment are taxed or charged for those costs at source. And then, if that happened and the redirected subsidies after Brexit were put on and given to farmers who are adopting more sustainable methods, then sustainably produced food would become more affordable. There is a revolution in farming, isn't there? There is. There's hardly a farmer in the United Kingdom who, in his or her heart, does not want to move towards more sustainable production. But it's all about the money. Obviously, it's all very well to farm 
in a wonderful way, but if you can't pay the bills, you're not going to be doing it for very long. So we need to create an economic environment where sustainable farming pays and unsustainable farming doesn't. That's the key challenge of our time, and I think most farmers would switch if they could. Patrick was in his early 20s when he first came to Bulkwern on Vaur with five other friends to set up a commune. 46 years later, he's watched the demise of the farming industry and the clarion call of Mother Nature to stop getting it so terrifyingly wrong. I, was, um, I grew up in the 60s, in and around London. My dad was a doctor, and my protest vote was to um, decide to get back to the land and set up a rural community trying to be self-sufficient in food. I was influenced by the green thinking that prevailed at that time because I spent a year in the west coast of America. And uh, 46 years later, uh, the commune didn't survive, although I wouldn't have missed it for the world. And I'm still very committed to the principles of community living. Mm -hmm. But the farming system did. So now I'm lucky enough to have been a witness to the stewardship of a small parcel of planet Earth for quite a long time, nearly 50 years, and see the results of my farming actions on the landscape. And the wonderful news is that our yields are going up, our soil fertility has increased, we've got an amazing profusion of biodiversity, and we're producing excellent nutritious food. And I believe that the principles upon which this farming system has been built could be applied all over the world. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, hit subscribe, add it to your favourites, leave a comment and share whenever you can. We'll see you next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 